Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Renee Powers here. And I am really looking forward to today's conversation. I brought on one of our contributors, and this is your first time on the podcast, Sam. Welcome. Thank you. I'm Sam Paul, and I've been a contributor with FBC for about a year. Yeah, and you write some of my favorite book reviews. So just if you haven't, listeners, if you have not checked out Sam's book reviews on our blog, Anything that you recommend, we're like, well, shit, now I got to read that. (laughs) That's amazing. So we're talking today about being child-free. And I am curious. I'm 37 years old. I am a white woman in the Midwest, grew up in kind of a social justice-oriented Catholic family. But Catholic family, I think, is is doing the heavy lifting in that phrase. And I don't have children. And Sam, you don't either. What is your background? Um, So I'm 36 years old. I grew up sort of in a non-denominational family. My father was Jewish and my mom was Catholic, but they didn't really raise me with those values. And I like I've never felt much pressure to have kids for my family, which is sort of amazing. Yeah, I was going to ask that. So when did you Have you always felt like, yeah, children aren't for me? Or when did you kind of start to think you're not going to be a mother in the traditional sense? You know, I've always been really cagey about it because I've seen so many people in my life sort of have the same feelings that I've always had that like, I I, I love children, actually. Like I love other people's children, but I've never felt a maternal urge. And then a lot of my friends who expressed these sorts of feelings eventually had kids and so I always have been kind of open to the fact that like maybe my mind would change, but sort of as time has gone on and on, I I just, I don't foresee any changes occurring in that area anymore. So it's been really gradual. That's interesting. So I have been with my partner since we were 20. And I think for the first, probably for the first like, five or six years of our marriage in particular, we kind of thought that it was, that was just like the next step. Like, that's just what, that's just what you do, especially (laughs) both coming from Catholic families. Like we met at Notre Dame, they call it Catholic Disneyland for a reason. And it wasn't until, you know, I don't think it was until like my PhD program, which I started in 2012. That I was like, oh, this is, I think I like my career. Yeah. And my my friends started to have kids. And I was like, ooh, I see what it's happening to their lives and how it's like overturning their lives entirely. And it just didn't look desirable to me in the slightest. And so, yeah, I think by the time I was like 28, 29, I was like, yeah, I really, and my partner was kind of indifferent too. And so when I was like, I don't think this is something I want, he was like, all right, sounds good. <laughs> So you mentioned, Sam, that you are you never really got pressure from family. And I really didn't either, surprisingly. But I'm wondering if there are other people in your lives, in your life, that have given you shit for this decision. I think, so I also, my partner, I don't know that he's indifferent. I know that he respects my choice and that I've been really upfront about it since we've been together for about 10 years. 
and I've been really upfront about this since the beginning that I never really saw myself as a mother. But in the beginning, I did say that, you know, I don't know what will happen, um, but we've sort of seen what has happened and not much. And I think his family is probably a little confused. He has three brothers and they all have children, though, so which I think takes some of the pressure off because there are so many grandkids that they don't really need anymore. I think professionally is where this sort of comes up for me, where most of the people I work with in my day job have children. But no one is asking me where mine are or if they're coming. But I've always felt like if I don't have a drink, which I often don't at work functions and things like that, people like I, I get a look or something. But I've been getting these looks for, you know, several years at this point. So I live in Minneapolis. You live in New York City, which I think is a very different vibe. Like it's a little more common for women in their mid to late 30s to be child free. The Midwest is kind of, well, I live on a block that has at least 30 children. It's all young families that are in my most immediate community. And I do feel kind of left out because, you know, they're always in somebody's yard playing on somebody's jungle gym or with somebody's, you know, soccer ball. And a lot of times we are not, my partner and I are not invited to that, even though like we like these people. But yeah, it is kind of a a lonely experience. And that's one thing that I wanted to talk about, too, is like, I have found it hard to make new friends or I don't want to sound judgmental because I promise I'm not, but like whose lives are not necessarily kind of usurped by children. And that to me, that's like folks with older kids, like once they get to be eight or nine and kind of entertain themselves. (laughs) It's a little easier to find time to connect and like connect about things that don't revolve around children. And so I'm wondering how have friendships changed for you or do you have trouble maintaining them? Or, you know, what does that kind of part of your soul feel like these days? It's interesting that you talk about place because I think place plays a big part in the reason that I really, that I don't think I will have kids because most of my friends who live in New York, as soon as they're pregnant or they have their first child, they leave. And I mean, it's different for me because my family is in the city. So I don't know that I would be able to leave anyway. But that's sort of the life cycle of someone in the city a lot of the time is that you you come when you're young, you establish yourself somehow, you have a family and you leave. I find that most of my friends who remain don't have kids. And the ones who do, have moved to suburbs or sort of areas around the city. And I get not to be judgmental because I love these people, but those first few years are really lonely for them. We stay in touch and the the people who are still in the city, we try to come visit and it's really nice and fun, but you can kind of see where those social ties have eroded for people and they're trying to rebuild them. And it's really hard. I don't envy that. I also want to state that like, I don't write off my friends when they have children. I want to be like really clear. And I know you don't either. It is just difficult when they're in that season because everything revolves around this, this child, this family. And I have so much respect for that. And I trust that after they're through that season, we will reconnect. Like my best friend has two small children. I love them dearly. I love her dearly. We don't have the time to connect like we used to. And I trust that 
when she can come up for air, it'll be like nothing has changed. And of course, I think that makes sense. It would be strange if things didn't change. And it would be strange if they did have the time that they used to have for your friendship. My best friend also, she has a a three-year-old now. And what's amazing, actually, is she has such a robust support system. We're long-distance friends, so she is in Florida and I'm in New York. And for us, it's almost like we didn't even miss a beat because she has a partner and family who really participate in the care of her daughter. So she's maintained this sort of independence that I don't always see people being able to maintain. And that's another part. Like, if I could guarantee that I had, like, really robust support emotionally, financially, if I could raise a child and know that I could maintain my quality of life, maintain the sort of career that I'm interested in having, pursue all of my goals, like, I probably would. It's just that that doesn't feel realistic for me. I think that's so important. Like, I absolutely agree with that. One of the big reasons that I see in some of my child-free friends is that the world is not set up to support, especially cis women who get pregnant and have children. The world is certainly not set up for families who adopt either. Just the way that childcare is so expensive and, you know, in our careers, we're looked down on if we are, you know, putting our energy elsewhere, like on our family. For me, if I were sitting on the fence still, I just don't see a good argument to go down that road. Like, yeah, am I curious what my DNA mixed with my partner's DNA might look like or turn out to be? Yeah, of course. But like, I don't need that question answered. And one of the things, the common like, well, who's going to take care of you when you're old? It's like, well, I hope to have banked up enough money at that point and I didn't spend on my children that I can pay for a really, really great retirement community. The pros do not outweigh the cons for me, and they haven't for the last, yeah, like 10 years. What would you tell somebody that was sitting on the fence? Oh, that's really hard because it's so personal. And I don't, like, I don't think my choices are better than anyone else's. And I don't think I'm in a position to sort of guide anyone in this. I think you really need to follow your gut. And I think that there's regret on both sides of this for anyone. I think no matter what choice you choose, even talking about that regret is like very taboo. People who have had children, you know, especially in the last several years, I think it's become less taboo to talk about sort of the difficulties associated with that and even regret, even though that's still a difficult thing to talk about. Do you hear women who don't have children who've made the choice because there, you know, there also needs to be a distinction between, you know, making this as a choice or actually, you know, having this chosen for you for a variety of reasons. I have not met a single child free by choice person who has regretted. Maybe that's just the people I surround myself with. And I, I'm really glad you bring up this distinction that we are talking about people who are child free by choice. And there's a semantic difference. You know, childlessness is very different than voluntary childlessness. And my heart just weeps for the people who want families of their own and and can't have that for one reason or another. I know that I didn't come to this decision lightly and I can't imagine being in, in their footsteps. But yeah, <laughs> this is one of those convoluted conversations. 
it's not all rainbows and kittens, <laughs> even though sometimes it feels like it, especially from the outside. For me, I didn't really hit a stride sort of in my professional life. Maybe I still haven't. Up until my mid-30s, so really in the last few years, I just didn't feel any financial stability. And now I finally have some. I think that there is a real freedom to sort of being able to enjoy life on your own terms that is indispensable. But I think sort of some of the things that we've spoken about, it, it socially, it can be difficult. And I think it will probably only get more difficult for a certain period for me. But I think it's probably worth it. Yeah, I I love that you use the word freedom. That's definitely, it's one of my key values is being able to decide what to do with my time. It's one of the reasons why I started a business. It's definitely a big reason why I don't have children. And I don't think that I would be able to, I know I wouldn't have been able to start this business, run this business if I had a family to look after that was more than just my partner and I, our dog. (laughs) And so I think the world needs both, right? I think the world needs ambitious, married to their career, really high achieving women and, you know, who don't have kids. And I think the world needs really ambitious moms and families that are strong and raising the next generation of leaders. I mean, kudos to like Gen X for raising Gen Z because like, holy shit, you did a great job. Like I said, I have so much respect for parents because what we're doing is putting so much faith in the future. And one of the reasons why I don't have kids is because I don't trust myself to guide a little life to be incredible. I think those that that do, that have guided these little lives to be incredible, like I, I give them so much credit because I can only imagine how difficult that's got to be. Since this is a book podcast, ostensibly, I do have some book recommendations. And I would love to see on our blog is a list of books that feature child-free women, child-free by choice women. And one of the ones I just read, which is fantastic, is called Serena Singh Flips the Script by Sonia Lali. It is fiction. It's like a platonic rom-com. Like the main character, Serena Singh, is child-free. She's in her mid to late 30s. She's dating, sort of, and also like looking for friends because all of her friends have had kids moved away from New York. And I just loved it. And so it's like a will they, won't they become friends with another woman at her new at her new firm that she's working at. So Sarita Singh flips the script by Sonia Lali. Fantastic. I also have a couple of nonfiction books that I want to shout out. I have not read these yet, but the two that I have are Someone Other Than a Mother Flipping the Scripts on a Woman's Purpose and Making Meaning Beyond Motherhood by Erin S. Lane. And what I think is interesting about this is Erin S. Lane, um, the author, was, from what I understand, thought she was going to be child-free her whole life, became a mother, and can speak to it from both sides, from, you know, being staunchly child-free to, well, I have a kid now, and here's what I think about the whole situation, which I think is really fascinating. And then the other one is called Do You Have Kids? Life When the Answer is No by Kate Kaufman. And I just received this in the mail. Shout out to She Writes Press for sending that my way. And so I am I'm curious to learn more about this because I don't know much about this book. But yeah, I'll, I'll keep you all posted probably 
on my story graph. You know, I haven't read all of this, so I can't, you know, fully endorse everything. But some people like Sophie Lewis and Emmy O'Brien have been talking a lot about some, a concept they're calling family abolition, which, it, you know, I think is really interesting. And I just came to Sophie Lewis this week because she wrote something in response to the Essential Labor book by Angela Garbez. And I love that book. I wrote about that book. And Lewis sort of was coming for it, saying that it wasn't political enough. And I think what she and Emmy O'Brien are looking at is sort of like alternative conceptions of family. What would it look like if community cared for a child? Which is a really complicated topic that sort of asks for a long discussion. But I think it's really interesting. And I think you know, looking at alternative conceptions of family sort of helps everyone. It helps women who, you know, don't have biological children of their own or adoptive children to, you know, participate in the life of a child. And it helps people who do, you know, have a life outside of their child. I have not heard that phrase before, family abolition. That's so fascinating to me. I've heard found family. I've heard chosen family and family abolition is so fascinating to me. I remember one of my like light bulb moments was when I was in grad school and I was so grateful and honored to take a course with Barbara Ransby, who is like a renowned activist and abolitionist and just like incredible woman. And we were talking about families and parenting and something along those lines. And I believe she's a parent, but she said something like, like, why can't we raise children in community? Why can't we kind of socialize families? And I think it's exactly what you're talking about here. Why can't we all be parents to the children in our community? Like, yeah. yes, of course. That's what we used to do, right? In time immemorial. And we've just individualized the family. And I think at the detriment to all of us. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll have links to everything we mentioned and where you can find Sam and I in the show notes. And we will continue this conversation, I think. I would be curious if you have thoughts, feelings, you can slide into our DMs or send us an email, hello at femisbookclub.com. If you're a fan of funny, smart, snarky women writers like Samantha Irby, Lindy West, Sloane Crossley, or Jenny Larson, listen up. From award-winning TV writer Laura Belgrave, Tough Titties is a hilarious collection of full-body cringe, watch-through-your-fingers life lessons her own husband calls loser sex in the city. Laura's wildly relatable coming-of-age stories include hate-following her sixth-grade bully on social media decades later, moving home post-college to measure her self-worth in hookups with Upper East Side bartenders, dating a sociopathic man-baby, proving herself in the early 90s at New York's coolest magazine as the world's worst intern, falling for get-rich-quick schemes on the internet, and most of all, saying tough titties to the supposed twos in life. Driving a car, being on time, handing in your paperwork, learning to roast a chicken, and having kids. Peppered with cutting insights on our confusing, self-helpy culture that calls hair removal self-care and tells us to give our 110%, but also to give zero fucks, Tough Titties will leave you feeling better about, well, everything. Let's face it, we're all tired of shame spiraling after being told what to do when we know we're not going to do any of it. Tough Titties comes out June 13th from Hachette Books. Order from your favorite local bookstore or shop online at bookshop.org. 
My name is Taylor, and I'm here today with author Ling Ling Huang to talk about her book, Natural Beauty. This book will stay with me for a really long time. I remember finishing it and then being on the phone with my sister and being like, oh my gosh, like everything I know is a lie. Oh, Well, I love that. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news about how much of a scam everything is. So this was a deeply personal novel. It's inspired by a lot of my own experiences. I've been a classical violinist for a lot of my life. I worked kind of briefly in the wellness and clean beauty industry. Also, my parents are immigrants. So all of these threads together came together to make natural beauty. And I had really long commutes between the gigs I was doing in New York City and the beauty store where I was working. And I started to think a lot about the parallels between these two industries. They're both, you know, kind of upper class luxury industries. And there are these really rotten things beneath their beautiful veneers. And so I just started writing kind of like a journal of all of the similarities. I noticed, you know, the ways that I was treated as someone working in these industries by customers, by audience members. And then eventually it became this book. That's awesome. Thank you for putting this creation out into the world. So I want to get into the story a little bit. There's a character, Victor, and he is kind of obsessed with beautiful things in the world and he's like this billionaire like interested in investing in a lot of like things that add beauty to the world what is your definition of beauty and how do you think social status plays a role in people's access to beauty well of course victor is obsessed with beauty he has everything else that money can buy like all of the things that you know, we actually really need. And of course, beauty and the beauty industry tries to convince us that it's it's something we absolutely need. But it's, you know, it's not like food. It's not, it's not shelter. But yeah, I have in my life met so many donors and and people who who have a lot of money who really think that's their purpose. So he's kind of modeled on on some of the wealthier people I've I've met in the classical music industry, as well as as well as the beauty industry. Beauty as it's packaged and sold to us is super unattainable, like physically and monetarily. We're always going to be lacking and that's totally by design. Uh, But being beautiful and being rich are basically synonymous to me. And so my adult life has been discovering what beauty is to me, like beyond what's constructed, socialized and ingrained. And so I have to do a lot of unlearning to figure out what I'm actually interested in, attracted to, what feels good for me as an experience. I spend a lot of time in nature now, which is the opposite of homogeneity. I go on walks and hikes, which A, are free, and B, are beautiful experiences that aren't trying to change me in in some way. And I think that's really helped me kind of reconfigure my relationship with beauty. The other day I was walking in Columbus, Ohio. I was wearing makeup and I was like, oh, I bet there are like freckles on my face that are Columbus specific. And then I was thinking of my freckles as this beautiful topography of places I've been and cool experiences I've had versus 
most Asian cultures really think of freckles as like something that is so ugly. But yeah, so it's it's kind of just relearning and it's it's always happening. I'm always relearning how much of beauty culture has been ingrained in me. Yeah, that's interesting about the freckles because like I just think about all the TikTok filters with freckles and like makeup and things and how I know my sister's probably going to kill me if she listens to this, but she went through like the fad during the pandemic where she would like actually put makeup freckles on and just like play around with that. So that's also linked to like cultures and like what different cultures find like as symbols of social status. And like you said, like beauty and rich because traditionally like, oh, freckles mean you have to labor in the sun. So obviously you're not rich. So Natural Beauty is about a wellness brand that goes to kind of extreme lengths to have their customers achieve beauty by, finger quotes, natural standards. Yeah. And yeah, just their definition of being natural. And how I want to know, how do you think we as a society kind of blur the expectations of what is considered natural for beauty? Yeah, without going into spoilers too much, the extreme lengths for natural beauty, even in picking the title and knowing that it could potentially be with my name on a cover one day, I thought was a little subversive. And, you know, growing up, I would have never thought that my name would be anywhere close to the words natural beauty. So it was really pleasurable to make that happen. And I hope there are little girls out there who, you know, it's a little bit maybe cognitive dissonance at first and then and then we get over it. But I think similar to the freckles situation, like we value natural because we never want to like see the labor involved, which is a kind of misogynist because We are the ones who are mostly putting in that labor, but we all want to pretend we woke up like this. And it's also related to the class situation, the ease of wealth and being born at the top where everything comes to us naturally. If you use the right products and get all the right procedures, the idea is that you could pass for another class. And in certain countries, that is a big deal. Like in South Korea, that's really one of the only ways to survive if you don't want to be bullied, if you don't want to be, you know, completely ostracized. It's this form of survival, but it's also chains us to our worth in that way. But yeah, I just, I love the way that we've taken things that are pretty unnatural and come up with the most natural way of doing them. Like how many videos have I seen of like naturally full lips? And then it's this bizarre thing where, yeah, you're like, it does technically look natural if you look at it as a feature on its own but like on the face like as a whole as a composite with the person it doesn't really look natural I had a lot of fun coming up with some procedures and and products because I was thinking like what is the most absurd organic grass-fed version of doing this like very unnatural thing like things are really blurred right now and they keep getting blurrier because the the more things are blurred the more they can profit from new terms that they come up with right and there were several times when I was reading the book that I thought of the bluest eye by Toni Morrison and how 
like the little girl Piccolo like prayed for blue eyes and like we've been talking about how it's tied to a certain status and it's it's like this really interesting like back and forth of like the people with social power taking features from the people without social power making them beautiful in their standards but on the people without power it's like it's not beautiful and it's like natural versus like I'm paying for this to look natural and it's like that very interesting about like what is being taken and reclaimed as natural for the sake of power and like who deems what gets to be natural? Yeah, it's it's such a thing. In a lot of the spaces that I worked and the products that I sold, you know, they had traditional Chinese medicine things. And, you know, natural beauty itself, like, appropriates and extracts from Mother Nature and from all of these other cultures. And I really felt like the markup of the products being like five times what you could buy a few streets down in Chinatown was literally just so you wouldn't have to interact with any of the cultures or like or the neighborhood. Um, but you were getting exactly the same product. And then also, what about the other cultures that weren't deemed good enough to extract from on the shelves? That was one of the things I noticed early on that gave me just kind of the heebie-jeebies about working where I was working. Yeah, it's like that power of being able to define what is natural, what is beautiful. Yes. Something else I noticed in the book was, that was a big theme, was belonging. So how do you believe beauty plays a role in how we do or do not belong in certain spaces. Yeah, I don't remember if I ever prayed for blue eyes, um, but I definitely prayed for blonde hair. And I was like, well, I have to do the work. So, you know, I doused my hair in sun in, I think like lemon slices that I stole from like some buffet restaurant and, you know, just whatever, whatever I could do to look like I belonged. And so for a long time, I conflated the two. I, I thought that being beautiful would mean belonging. And another way that I tried belonging was, was also like becoming a Christian for a while. And it just, I didn't realize for so long that I was trying to belong and, and not, it was only when I went to China and saw so many people who looked like me, including my my family members who had really distinctly the same features as I did. That's when I felt like I don't need to change anything to belong. I just I'm not around the same the the right people. And so that slowly started this, you know, getting getting to know myself really for for who I am and what I look like. But yeah, it, I think it's really conflated. And we see it in like, especially like girl groups or movies with lots of girls in them. I mean, all of my coworkers, anytime we tried a new product or did a little tweak somehow, the other people would do the same thing. And yeah, it's, it was a way to, to signal belonging to each other and to be like, we are friends because we have the same surgery or, or something. It's like, yeah, <laughs> definitely trying to 
not force belonging, but like, like you said, signal belonging by doing the same things and trying to look a certain way and finding ways, even if you can't look a certain way, how can you like make up for it in other ways? Because I know I did it in my youth as well as like being like one of the few black girls in my friend group and like, okay, so how can I change the way I talk? How can I change like what I listen to? How can I change these different aspects? And when they compliment me or whatever on ways I'm different from people who don't belong, who I actually identify with, then I took it as a way of, okay, I am accepted by these people because they are othering me from the people that I actually look like in order to belong in this group. Another theme I noticed was definitely around exploitation. When you said we don't want to think about like the labor that goes into beauty. And what I noticed in the book, whether it was people's financial situations or people's fears and beliefs and insecurities, it, it a lot of it had to do with exploitation. The beauty industry uses exploitation it's like very fear-mongering a lot of the people who would walk into the store i mean we sold 400 dollars water filters you know like 400 dollars face creams and people would walk in and i would just be like i know that you can't afford most of the things here but it's you're gonna try because this is what you're seeing on your social media you're seeing people in the store that you want to be or, you know, you want to have their same situation and you're going to pick up exactly what, what they're looking at. And so I would always tell them, like, where to get the same thing for cheaper or things like that. But it was just, you know, out of this same, like, scarcity, insecurity, fear mindset that most most of, like, capitalism builds into into us. You know, they just, they were willing to sacrifice, like, maybe they wouldn't eat as well that you know that week because they've shelled out for this thing that will give them belonging or they'll really think that it'll change their lives somehow um but yeah it's this constant like spinning like as soon as freckles are in fashion they're profiting from that and then they're gonna say oh actually like freckles are bad let's sell you this like extremely expensive sunscreen and get rid of your dark spots situation the bear constantly dictating what trends are at the forefront and they're making us feel insecure every time they do that so that's that's how they exploit nature cultures but most of all us as consumers yes and that all goes hand in hand with like that belonging aspect and that we talked about and like going to those extreme lengths and who defines what in order to sell us like what we think we need in our lives and happiness. So that's definitely all wrapped up in natural beauty. And I like flew through it. I was actually on a plane to Paris and like I read like half of it going and half of it coming back. So thank you again for writing this book. And putting all of these concepts into the world. Thank you so much for reading and for taking me to Paris. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Before we go, I do want to ask, what is a book that you've read or 
either recently or before that has really impacted you? Because this one, somebody asked me this question. Maybe like my favorite book in the last couple of years. And then one that I read more recently that I enjoyed. This is just a book that I keep thinking about. It's Piranesi by Susanna Clark. And it's maybe not like what I would gravitate toward. I I don't know. Sometimes I struggle with fantasy and the language. So I like opened it to the first page and I was like, oh, I can't do this. But then I stuck with it for just like the the rest of the page and I was sucked in. But there's like, you know, unlikable main characters is is really popular right now. And I'm such a big fan of that. But this was a lovable character. And I kind of marveled at the fact that there was a great character who wasn't in any way stupid or simple or like one dimensional. And it, it was so well done that I I really find myself missing him a lot of the time. And like, I often want to reread it just because I miss him. So it's such a like haunting and, and luminous world. So delicate, but quietly powerful. I think the imagery is amazing. Yeah. So I, I really love, love that book. And then I just finished Venomous Lump Sucker by Ned Bowman. And it was just kind of a wild, absurd, I guess it could be like a Clifa, but it's this world of like extinction credits and like, you know, really kind of evil companies that spin it so that there's all these loopholes so that all comp- like things are going extinct every day, but they're, you know, it's all like monetized. It's scarily something I could definitely see happening, but it's it's done so humorously that it's, you know, it's it's not like too oh, like sad to read. It's it's eye-opening and it kept me guessing until the very end. And especially since AI is such a hot topic right now, it kind of had a really interesting take on AI that that wasn't really like humans versus AI, but like how humans versus humans using AI will will always be the bigger deal, like how we choose to exploit one another. And like, what if we passed along the best of our instincts to AI instead, things like that. So it explores a lot of interesting current questions. And yeah, so that's, those those are me too. Yes, I'm going to definitely check them out because if you give a fantasy recommendation that's like easy to digest, I'm going to eat it up because I'm trying to get more into fantasy. Yes. And then yeah. finally, where can people find you and your work? So my name is Lingling Huang, and you could find me at the website linglinghuang.com or I'm on Instagram at violing squared. Yeah. So it's it's like too it's too much with the with the puns, but but that's that's what it is. I'm I'm all about puns, so I love it. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your book and beauty and expectation and belonging and all of the things. I hope everybody listening picks up this book because if you're if you are in the headspace, because it will rock your world in the best way. So thank you again, Ling Ling, and yeah, we'll see you on the podcast next time. Okay, sounds great. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. 
Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh, oh, oh. Yeah.